We are jumping into chapter 13 this morning. We've already considered Genesis chapter 3 a few weeks back about uh, your promise that the, uh, the serpent will strike the heel of your servant, but your servant has the ability, the power to crush the head of the serpent. That's a lot of what has been going on through so much of history, the history of the church uh, is this conflict, this ongoing conflict that's gone on between the evil one and those who follow him and and the Lord and those who follow him. And sometimes it seems it seemed as though the evil one was winning. Uh, in other times, it's very clear uh, that the Lord our God is, is winning. But I pray that we would all be mindful and remember this, that it's not an even conflict. It's not a, a conflict between evil, uh, even opponents that God is fully capable of being done with Satan at any moment. That he has no power over, had no power over Jesus. And because he has no power over Jesus, ultimately, he has no power over us. The Apostles' Creed we ran, uh, we've recited this morning, has a lot to do with many different aspects of our belief. But one of those is it's very strongly founded in the doctrine of the Trinity, that we believe that there is one God. As a matter of fact, we know that there is one God. But that one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit. We know that Satan is evil. Now, I was pondering this this morning, and the conclusion I came to is this, is he's just completely consumed with self-love. He loves himself. He doesn't even love those who gather around him and worship him, as we're going to look at in just a few minutes. He loves himself. He pictures himself as God. He desires, he has, he's consumed with a passion and that passion is to overcome God, that he can take his throne from him and sit on his throne. He is all about himself. He is absolutely, totally self-consumed. He wants what he wants, and he will settle for nothing less. The interesting thing is this, is... As we study what the Bible has to say about God, there's no other conclusion we can come to other than he is one in in nature, but three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Satan is a deceiver. He will take every moment, every opportunity that he has to mock God, to mimic God. And that is one of the things we're going to see here in chapter 13 in Revelation. 
you may have never even considered this. I don't know if you've even read this particular chapter or not, but I would imagine it didn't really cross your mind. But, but really what we're being presented with here is what you might call the anti-trinity. It's a mockery of God. Because what you're going to find as we read these, these verses is there are three beings mentioned here. One is the great red dragon. Number two is the beast who comes up from the sea. And number three is the beast who comes up from the earth. Do we think for a minute that it is just some happenstance or some mistake there happen to be three beings in this particular chapter? We probably have never even thought about this. That we need to understand that the things that we're about to look at here, what are unfolding before us today, is anti-Trinitarian. In other words, there's a sense in which this is Satan's mockery of the Trinitarian God. As God is represented in three persons, you see the evil one, in essence, is represented here in three different And he stood on the sand of the seashore. This is the dragon. Remember the last that we read that he had had persecuted the woman. And after a time he had given up and he had gone off to persecute the rest of her offspring. And now he's standing on the sand of the seashore. This is the dragon. If you can picture probably people, you've seen this, maybe you've done this yourself. Someone standing on the beach, looking out over the water in anticipation of someone coming home. Maybe some of these veterans had been overseas and they had loved ones, wives, and, 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 and today very often husbands and children and, and parents and other loved ones, friends. that were longing to see them come home and very often they're coming home from war in a distant land. He's anticipating the appearance of something or someone. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on the heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain in this vital, fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who was like the beast and who was able to wage war with him. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to, to act for 42 months uh, the, the authority to act for 42 months was given to him, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to man, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his, uh, his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that uh, he even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it uh, was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had been wo- had the wound on, uh, of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. We'll stop there for today. So this beast comes up out of the sea. Now I just want to remind us of something. And that is that Revelation is full of all kinds of signs and symbols. And when we have the opportunity, we let, need to let the book of Revelation interpret things for us. Here, the sea very well might not be the sea literally. In a later passage... The sea is described as being people, a sea of people. So there's a sense in which maybe what's probably what is going on here is this beast is not coming up out of the sea, literally. He's coming out of the midst of the peoples. He has an amazing resemblance to the dragon. Ten horns and seven heads. And diadems. See, there's a likeness. He's not, just remember this. He's not Satan, but he's made in the image of Satan. He's satanic. He is wicked. He is evil. He is destructive. On his heads were blasphemous names. What's blasphemy? Speaking against God. Saying bad things about God. Stamped all over his head. He's anti-God. There's a sense in which he is anti-Christ. has resemblance of a leper, a bear, and a lion. If you're familiar with Daniel chapter 7, all three of those are mentioned in descriptions of different kingdoms that would rise and that would fall. And here we find them all brought together. What are leopards known for? 
for their swiftness. What about bears? I recently saw a, uh, a video that amazed me when, you know, Lori and I were in Alaska. One of the rules of thumb is this, is when you're in Alaska, if you're going out of town, you're going out into the wild at all, then you take a very big gun with you. And the primary reason is they're bears, and these bears are humongous, some of them. They, uh, they had in the, the hardware store in Kodiak, Alaska, they have a stuffed polar bear that's standing up on his hind legs, and it's a 10-foot ceiling, and the top of his head almost touches the ceiling. And you just have this sense that if something like this was coming at me, chasing me, and got a hold of me, that I wouldn't stand a chance. He would just rip me to shreds without me being able to do anything to stop it at all. Can you imagine the horror that would go through your mind? Now, let me tell you something. I was also watching another video, a video recently, and the video had to do with these people in Alaska. They were going out bear watching, and they had a guide that took them out there uh, and, 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 and all of that, and they came across some bears. And one of the males started charging the group, and there was nothing protecting them. Just open area. Now, you've, now I would imagine that the, the first uh, thought, the first reaction that went through those people's minds was to turn and run as hard as you could. But their guide had told them not to do that. That if this happens, sit down. Be quiet. Don't do anything. They did that. The bear came up, and he sniffed a couple of them and walked away. There's a bear that wants to have its way with us. We have a protector. His name is Jesus. The mouth of a lion. We've talked about this a number of times lately, and always what comes to mind is the MGM thing that goes on at the beginning of all these movies. This lion roaring. Notice here, what I would say to you is there's reason to believe that this is in some ways a picture of Christ for a number of different reasons, of the, ant, of the Antichrist in particular for a number of reasons. One of those is this, is the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Then we read the same thing about the child that was born to the woman Last week or the week before that? How the devil was supposed to devour the child when it was born, but God didn't let that happen. He took him and raised him up into heaven and put him on his throne. That Jesus Christ, as we're speaking right now, is on his heavenly throne, and all power and authority in heaven and earth has been granted unto him. You can see the beast here is a mockery of that very aspect of Christ. 
then you have Satan giving his power and authority to this other one. Even his throne. I saw on his heads as it had been, as if it had been, one of his heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Even a clearer mockery of Christ. I mean, what is a fatal wound? A fatal wound is a wound that you what? You die from. that it had been healed. And we understand that the ultimate picture of that is the death of Christ on the cross, right? That this is a mimicry, an obscene mimicry of that very thing. And when people see it, they're amazed. Let me ask you something. Does the resurrection amaze you? Does it... Does it, does it is it amazing to you that Christ was dead and then he came to life once again in three days by the power of God? If you saw something like that happen with your eyes, do you think he might be drawn to follow that person in some way? We need to understand that this is an anti-picture of the resurrection of, and death and resurrection of Jesus. That has a purpose, and the purpose is to draw attention to it, and the purpose is to draw people away with it. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, we know that it doesn't literally mean the whole earth. Because we know that some of those people who have the seal of God are on in the earth at this time, right? We understand that. That what it's saying is there is a lot of, it's not just one or two. It's not five or ten or fifty or whatever. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of people that are in the world at that time that follow him. And by following the beast, you're following Satan. Now, there are people who profess to be Satan worshipers, right? In other words, they actively worship Satan. You see articles about them in news magazines sometimes, and maybe on TV every now and then. They'll have a story about real-life Satan worshipers. You've heard me talk before about the time that Lori and I went to Ocala in, uh, in protest of a... Of a rally that now, the now movement was having in Ocala, uh, which is pro-abortion, and we were there with other Christians, and they had it on the square, and we were walking uh, around the square, and at one one point, there was a fellow that was with us, and he started looking at this lady, and she had a pentagram on her, and he recognized her as a witch, and he spoke to her about it. And she admitted that she was a Satan worshiper with pride and arrogance. There are people that are that possessed, that consumed with hatred and 
just as their father Satan. They worship Satan. Now we need to consider something else, and that is this. Either we worship rightly or we worship wrongly. There's no in-between. And what I mean by that is this, is, is everyone worships something. It's that thing that is most central to their life, most central to their being. And, and we understand that very often with people, it's themselves. Just like we find here with Satan and the beast. They're self-consumed. People very often are in that category. So there's a sense that unless people are truly worshiping the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they're worshiping Satan by not worshiping him. How many people in this world do you think might possibly fall into that category? Who was like the beast? And who was able to wage war with him? Well, you know what? We know someone that's very capable of waging war with him. He already has. God. His angels. Remember Michael and the other angels. They've already cast Satan. Who supposedly is so powerful. And have all this authority and whatever. But he's already been kicked out of heaven. And cast down to the earth. And he still has the arrogance of believing. That eventually he'll be able to defeat God. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And we see 42 months here again, which is 1,260 days, three and a half years, a time, times and a half a time. We've seen those periods mentioned. It's just... And what I would say to you, it's the same period of time, and we have good reason from Scripture to believe that it's just a reference to the time between Christ's ascension into heaven as Revelation begins very early on in chapter 5 as he first appears in the throne room of God as the lamb who was slain. He had that mortal wound, but he was resurrected to life. He not only blasphemes God, but he blasphemes his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. So it's not just that he has his anger that he's venting toward God. He's also venting, and we've seen this, he's already persecuting the church. When he can't have Jesus, he goes to Jesus' people. 
It's the source, it's the heart of the persecution that's fallen on the church ever since Jesus is ascended back into heaven. has been part of the picture somewhere. Sometimes it's been a very large part of the picture. For some people, some Christians living in the world today, it is the biggest part of their picture. They know they're going to be persecuted today. They're just maybe not necessarily sure what form it's going to come in. But just as sure as the sun comes up today, there's going to be some persecution along the way. That's their life. You and I are very privileged. We're privileged among people in the world. We're privileged among many generations of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Persecution has sometimes been unbelievably severe. I've been reading about the Reformation and then not only that, things that came after the Reformation because as good as the Reformation was, it didn't keep everybody on track. And before you know it, the churches began to, to go off in directions they didn't need to go in again. It's human nature to do that. Seems as though we need to have a reformation, a big reformation, very periodically in the, in the life of the church because it's so easy for the church itself to become consumed with itself and to forget about the world out there and to kind of draw up into a ball and, and focus upon itself without really giving a lot of sense and an, an attention to the world around it. It's easy to do that, guys. It's the tendency of people to do that. We all want to live in this nice, little, comfy, cozy little world. But let me just tell you, for the Christian, that world does not exist in this world. But there's no place this world is going to carry us that our Savior cannot deliver us from. He is our protector. Doesn't mean that there'll be we'll go through life and there won't be some harm that comes upon us and hurt and, and things like that. But we know this: that God is in control. Jesus is in control. There's never a moment when He's not, and He will never leave us. He is always with us, even in our deepest, deepest troubles and trials and tribulations. That's where our strength is. And knowing he will not leave us. And knowing that he is with us always. Regardless of the circumstances surrounding us. Not only persecuting people, God's people in the world at this point, but trying to persecute those who dwell in heaven. It's almost like this. The bully. You ever have a bully in school? Maybe some of you were the bully in school. Used to whoop up on the little kids and that sort of thing. We know that Jesus, when he came into the world, that he bound the strong man who was Satan. Doesn't mean he's taken everything away from him. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do bad things and, and and all of that. But we know that he is limited. He is restricted. Christ has restricted him. Christ has restrained him. 
If he didn't do that, all of this would have been over a long time ago. Are we capable still of blaspheming God? Ever do that? There's all kinds of ways to use the Lord's name in vain. Verse 7 was given to him to make war with the saints. Persecution all over again. And overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now, who's given this authority to do this? Is it God? No, it's Satan giving this authority to the beast. Satan is in a habit of giving things and promising things. He has no power to deliver on. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Sometimes I've wondered why Satan continues to do what he's going to do. I mean, he, he, he knows things that are coming down the pike. He knows the story. He knows the end of the story. But he still does all this stuff. Why? Well... I really believe this, that he is such a good deceiver that he has deceived himself into believing that eventually he will be victorious, that eventually that he will over even overcome God himself. That's how twisted his mind is. He thinks He's, he's hanging on this little thread of hope that he will be able to bring a different end to the story. It's given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now we need to understand that does Satan have power? Yes, Satan has power. Compared to you and I, Satan has a lot of power. But we know the only power he has is the power that God allows him to have. He gives it and he can take it away anytime he wants to. So it's hard for us to understand this. We need to understand to realize that, that this is part of the picture that God has painted. That Satan is part of that picture. And God allows him for his own purposes. We don't understand what they are. You know, it's way beyond our ability to even begin to comprehend this. But, 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 but somehow, God is using him to complete particular things that have to be done. Because we know that God is all-powerful, right? Can't be that there's a God who's, who's all-powerful, and at the same time there's a Satan who has all this power too. 
what power he has, God has afforded to him. He is no threat to God. He could squash God, God could squash him like a grape at any moment. He's no threat to God at all. He's convinced himself that he is. He really believes that he is. And those who worship him believe the same thing. Now we've seen this, this description of, of people of every tribe and people and tongue and nation already, right? It was all the way back in chapter 5, I'm pretty sure. Those who came before the throne of God. And they gave worship and praise to him. Remember the 144,000? Remember that? It was like a long time ago. We talked about the 144,000. We're going back to the 144,000 real soon. But people of every tribe and tongue and nation church of Jesus Christ. We understand this. We've seen this, this setting apart of people into two different groups from the very beginning of our study. We've seen it over and over and over again. Those who have the seal of God on their forehead, we haven't gotten to it yet, but there's a seal of the evil one that's coming up in this Chapter. And we know that God, with all these different calamities that have come, wars and this plague and that plague and all these other things described in Revelation, he's protected his people in the midst of these things. And then when these things have befallen on all of those who are not his people, that they run from God, they do everything they can and get do to get away from God. They pray that the mountains and rocks would fall on top of them and etc. because they can't stand to be into the gaze of God himself. But there's no repentance. See, this is the real distinction to be made that's been we've seen through this book, and that is this. There's a distinction to be made between those people who have seen their sin uh, committed against God and who have repented of it, and those who even when confronted with their sin and their evilness and wickedness still refuse to repent. That's the big distinction. That's the difference that we've seen between these two groups of people from the very beginning of this book. Those who were God's people... And from this chapter, those who are the evil one's people, the people of the beast, first beast, and people of the second beast. Verse 8, if you don't want to remember anything else in this particular chapter, this might be the very most important verse for you to take a look at. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
In other words, what we're talking about here are those who are not saved. Remember the Reformation we just celebrated. And one of the things that came so much to the forefront there was this concept that had been lost. And that is this, is that when people are saved, God saves them. They don't save themselves. They don't save themselves by keeping church laws, by keeping church rules. They don't save themselves by keeping the the Ten Commandments. They don't save themselves. God saves. When people are saved, God does the saving. There was a point in time in your life when you professed faith in Jesus Christ. I'm hoping, I don't know for all of you, but I know that for most of you that's true. The picture that so many Christians today would have of that whole event is this is now. Your name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life at the very beginning of time. A long time before you lived on this earth. And see, this is the power of God that is bringing all of this to reality down through the generations, down through the ages. One of the big controversies in the Reformation was this. Did Jesus die to pay the penalty of the sins of all people? Or did he die specifically? Did he live and die to atone for the sins of his people? Now, what do you think the general population believes today? And I would even say the general population of the church believes today. That Jesus died to make salvation possible for everybody and anybody. That is not what the Bible teaches us. That Jesus did all that Jesus did for the elect. For those that God determined to save at the very beginning of time. I don't know when you came to know the Lord. Sometime in your life, maybe you're one of those rare people that don't, you can't remember a time when you didn't believe in Jesus. That's not true for most of us. Most of us, like me, I can remember kind of vaguely a day when, when I woke up and I just, it just dawned on me that, that I believed all this stuff about Jesus and about God, uh, this Trinitarian God, that I used to make fun of people for believing. Let me tell you something. I don't doubt, I don't think for one minute that Keith saved me. That God is the one who brought me. He laid a hold of me. He drew me to himself. I was not out there looking for him. I didn't want to have anything to do with him, period. He came and got me. I was that lost sheep and he came to me. And he brought me to himself. Why? Because he has known me from the very beginning of time. Way before I even was. 
before my parents even knew me, before my mother even knew me as I was developing inside of her. See that all of this history and so much of this is this history that's unfolding. It's unfolding for a purpose. And ultimately, it's going to be for the revelation of the contents of that book. The very end of time. When the final separation will take place. Where the tares will be removed from the wheat. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The good fish will be separated from the bad fish. What's the determining factor? It's your name in the book. It's important that you understand this. But Jesus didn't do what he did we're thinking about today as we do the Lord's Supper. To do what he did and just left everything then in your lap so you could make the decision to do this or not do that. What I'm telling you is Jesus has done it all. He's even changed your cold heart. You would have had nothing to do with him at all without that. The Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name there? It's the most important question you could ask anybody. This table represents a lot of things. But one of those is God's guarantee. God's guarantee to be faithful to all that he's promised. Because for those who trust in Jesus and know him as their Lord and Savior, death has already come. It's a different kind of death than we think about. Death to the world. Death to sin. Understand that it's impossible that Jesus came to save everyone make salvation possible. Let me tell you, if he did that, everyone would be saved, and we know that everyone's not going to be saved. When God determines to do something, he does it. Period. No exceptions. This is a measure of his determination for him to save We're talking about the love of God in Sunday school this morning, and and we decided it's just totally, completely uncomprehensible to us. It's so great and so unbelievable. 
hard to imagine that a God would love us as much as he does to do what he's done to save us. And yet we're confronted with a reality. We're confronted with a truth. And one of the reasons we do this once a month is so that we will be renewed in, our, in that truth over and over again. I don't know about you, and Lori can tell you, I'm getting to be Mr. Forgetful. And sometimes I forget very important things. And sometimes people get hurt because I do. And that grieves your heart. But he's done all of it for us. He's paid the cost.